Focus on Headline. All right, let's take a look at what major issues are making the headlines today on Focus on Headline. For this, uh, joining us in the studio, we have our reporters, Lee Ji-young and Son Bo-kyung. Guys, welcome back. Good evening. All right, uh, we're going to start things off on the diplomatic front this time. It seems like the top two diplomats of uh, South Korea and Japan... Uh, they'll be naturally meeting in the same session at the Munich Security Conference held this week. Uh, this is starting on uh, February 17th to the 19th. Uh, however, it seems like the talks on the sidelines not yet confirmed. Is it confirmed? Is it not confirmed? We'll find out. ji you have the latest on this. Uh, yeah. Now, Foreign Ministry spokesperson Im Suk stated at a regular press briefing yesterday that Seoul ministers of both South Korea and Japan will be attending the security conference in Munich this week. Now, although schedules for official bilateral talks haven't been decided, the two will have a chance to meet again organically. Now, the two sides are looking into discussing uh, pending issues for compensating Korean victims of the forced labor for Japanese companies during World War II. Now, as Yoshimasa Hayashi will be at the conference for a short period of time, um, so it's likely that if bilateral talks were to be held, uh, eight, the 18th seems to be the date. Now, the two ministers are reportedly attending a session at the Indo-Pacific Strategy uh, Conference, uh, which is a program of the Munich Security Pro- Conference um, as presenters. Now, this will allow the two top diplomats to meet and exchange conversations um, naturally. And it also seems that Minister Park Jin is expected to repeatedly urge Japan's response to resolve the ongoing issue of compensation for the forced labor issue uh, when he gets to have a meeting with his Japanese counterpart. Uh, In particular, the key issue is whether Nippon Steel and Mitsubishi Heavy Industries, uh, the Japanese defendants who received a final judgment on compensation, will contribute to raising funds for the victims. So that has been kind of like the hot potato because um, it seems as though none of them are budging to pay for the compensation. Now, uh, Japan is maintaining the stance that it is difficult for these companies to contribute. Uh, There are various measures uh, to uh, attract uh, their participation in raising of funds, but uh, it's it's likely that we won't see a lot going on. Uh, As we have previously reported, the first vice foreign ministers of the two countries held a marathon meeting about two and a half hours in Washington. But uh, there was still a difference in uh, perception on the key issues, and they were unable to uh, come to a conclusion. Now, as South Korea and Japan are frequently discussing from the working level uh, on the issue over the phone, follow-up communication may follow even after the possible foreign ministries ministers meeting. Um, and also, on the coming 28th, uh, the foreign ministry uh, uh, says that the foundations for supporting victims of forced mobilization by Japan and some of the survivors of the victims will hold a group meeting. Yeah, and that whole that meeting will, of course, probably be uh, the government basically saying, listen, uh, this is going to be what uh, the, the solution is going to be or the, you know, what Japan's stance is on this or what they're willing to do, what we're willing to do, what mm-hmm. the South Korean companies are willing to do. 
Sacramento, and of course the uh, the victims, uh, the f survivors, uh, their take on this and whether or not they'll accept it. But again, I mean, you're right. It's highly unlikely that Mitsubishi Heavy Industries nor Nippon Steel is going to be part of the compensation or this this foundation that they're forming because mm -hmm. the reason why this whole uh, foundation is being formed in the first place is because, well, because they refuse to pay. And so they're trying to figure out how others are going to compensate. But I think they're trying, they're missing the point here mm -hmm. is if it doesn't involve Nippon Steel or Mitsubishi heavy, heavy Industries, and from what I understand, according to preliminary reports that are coming out, none of the Japanese firms, no Japanese firms want to get involved with this foundation, right? And so mm -hmm. it seems like it's only the South Korean government, the South Korean companies who are willing to put in on this. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if none of neither Nippon Steel, Mitsubishi Heavy Industries, these, uh, the Japanese government, nor any of the, the Japanese uh, companies are willing to put in onto this foundation, then the victims are basically going, well, th that's no apology then. That This is no compensation. Mm -hmm. And why is the South Korean companies, why is the South Korean company uh, government compensating for us for, on things that they didn't do? And so that, again, once the meeting does take place, uh, I un unless some miracle pops up and Nippon Steel and Mitsubishi Heavy Industries says, all right, we'll get in on this foundation. I don't think they'll accept it. And this is why there's still this long standstill right now. And the reason why, uh, despite the fact that Seoul and Tokyo have been in discussions in regards to this and still haven't found a solution is because the Japanese companies are not getting involved with the compensation process. Moving on here, South Korean and Dutch foreign ministers also holding their first strategic dialogue for close supply cooperation. We've also heard about this. This in regards to, of course, the U.S. Uh, pushing for many of its allies to restrict exports of semiconductor goods to China. Let's get the details of this, Bogyang. Sure. So Foreign Minister Park Jin, who is currently in the Netherlands, met Dutch Foreign Minister Wop Hoekstra on Thursday to hold the first strategic dialogue. The strategic dialogue was held according to the summit deal agreed by President Yoon Seok-yeol and Prime Minister Mark Rutte during their summit talks in Seoul in November 2022. According to Seoul's foreign ministry, both diplomats were on the same page that strengthening economic security through a stable global supply chain is important, especially when supply chain was disrupted due to the pandemic, the war in Ukraine, and competition in the fields of technology. The ministers discussed ways to promote cooperation in the fields of semiconductor, nuclear plants, and also agreed to further expand trade and investment, leveraging mutually complementary industrial structures of both countries. A foreign official said that since the Netherlands manufactures semiconductor equipment and South Korea makes semiconductors using those equipment, close cooperation was discussed at the meeting. In fact, a Dutch semiconductor equipment maker called ASML is the only company in the world that exclusively manufactures extreme ultraviolet or EUV lithography equipment, which is key to microprocessing of semiconductors. It's also interesting to note that, as you said, SJ, whereas the Netherlands joined U.S.-led chip export controls against China, the country discussed stable supply chain management with South Korea. And the ministers also welcomed the, su the successful co-hosting of the summit on responsible artificial intelligence in the military domain earlier this week in Hague. The second summit is expected to be held in South Korea.
it's kind of interesting because uh, South Korea and the Netherlands, they were holding talks because of the pressure coming in from the United States, basically mm-hmm. saying, listen, uh, we have to start, uh, the, again, U.S. kind of going, we have to restrict supplies, uh, semiconductor exports to China, and uh, both the South Korea and the Netherlands going, I mean, we can't really afford to do this, right? Mm-hmm. And the next thing you know, the Netherlands go, all right, we'll be part of this. And right. then South Korea, as we saw with the export figures, I mean, we're on a you know trade a massive trade deficit because there is less demand to semiconductor goods uh, from uh, China. And so mm-hmm. can we afford to be a part of this you know, export restriction that U.S. is pushing for is the big question. But uh, it seems like the Netherlands are on, this, on the, uh, the side of the United States for this. Uh, in the meantime, the National Assembly's Foreign Affairs Committee passing a resolution calling for further strengthening of the alliance between South Korea and the United States to mark the 70th anniversary of their bilateral alliance. Now, the two sides are also expected to hold a joint drill in mid-March. Let's get uh, more on this, Cheung. Sure. Now, through the resolution that passed earlier today, uh, the Foreign Affairs Committee of the National Assembly reaffirmed that South Korea-U.S. alliance was the foundation of the country's uh, uh, democratization and economic growth. And it continues to function as a linchpin of peace and prosperity on the Korean peninsula, the region, and the world. Now, it also said that there is a clear reciprocal need uh, both internally and externally to uh, expand and improve the alliance for mutual prosperity in line with the 70th anniversary. Now, other than security matters, uh, the resolution also calls on both countries to boost cooperation in semiconductors, artificial intelligence, and space technology, as well as work together to stabilize the global supply chain. Now, also um, uh, agreed by President Yoon Seok-yeol and U.S. President Joe Biden last year, uh, the resolution including included uh, stepping up legal and policy pers- support for the Global Strategic Comprehensive Alliance and also strengthening parliamentary exchange between the two countries. Now, the two allies uh, will also hold a combined uh, springtime field training exercise, also known as the Freedom shield in mid-March this year. And according to the defense ministry, the allies will stage the joint drill for 11 consecutive days during this time. Um, However, with possible provocations and nuclear tests by North Korea uh, ahead of the Freedom Shield exercises, the South Korean military decided to hold a military commander's meeting on March 3rd to check the readiness posture. Now, as there were concerns in advance, local media reported that North Korea had earlier threatened to unleash unprecedentedly persistent and strong counteractions if South Korea and the U.S. were to carry out planned military exercises in the coming weeks. That's right. And that could come as a form of, again, intercontinental ballistic missile provocations. And uh, I, again, we're still looking at whether or not uh, North Korea is going to be indeed conducting their seventh nuclear test. Uh, But speaking of which, for the first time since uh, 2016, South Korea's Ministry of Defense defining and labeling North Korea as the country's 
enemy in its latest uh, defense white papers. Uh, Bo Kyung, you have more on this. Right. So as you just said, for the first time in six years, North Korea is defined as South Korea's enemy in the 2022 defense white paper. This white paper is the 25th version of its kind and the first one to be published during the Yoon Seok-yeol administration. The Defense Ministry's 2022 white paper revived the expression that was once removed under the previous Moon Jae-in government, which is, quote, the North Korean regime and military are our enemies, unquote. And as you all know, Pyongyang also described South Korea as a clear enemy last December and carried out numerous provocations. Last year alone, the North violated the 2018 inter-Korean agreements on alleviating tensions between the two countries 15 times and test-fired ballistic missiles for 34 days. The white paper also describes that Pyongyang continued to produce weapons-grade nuclear materials. Seven new models were added to the list of the North-known projectiles. These would include close-range and short-range ballistic missiles, submarine-launched ballistic missiles, hypersonics, and the massive Hwasong-17 intercontinental ballistic missile. According to the white paper, Seoul aims to strengthen its three-axis system, focusing on preemptive strikes and retaliatory measures. Also, much has been mentioned about Washington's extended deterrence policy that offers security assurance for its allies under conventional or nuclear attacks. And another huge difference in this white paper is that South Korea described Japan as a close neighbor that shares its values. The paper stressed the need to build futuristic and cooperative relations. Yeah, it's interesting how these uh, the wording, certain wording, uh, this uh, shows the relations between the two countries. I mean, no surprise that uh, the uh, Ministry of Defense uh, labeled North Korea as enemies. Uh, naturally so. Again, like, like you mentioned, North Korea defining South Korea as a uh, clear enemy. But even with like uh, Japan's uh, defense white paper that we look at, they, the way that they defend uh, South Korea is very different. It's interesting because they'll either call them, uh, what is it, neighbors or close neighbors. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that Seoul uh, described Japan as close neighbors, you're obviously seeing a much better uh, bilateral relations, which I believe in previous white papers, Japan was just labored, uh, labeled as neighbors, right? Uh, in the meantime, uh, we talked about the uh, Defense Ministry releasing this white paper uh, and uh, labeling North Korea as enemies. The report also includes that North Korea has been increasing its stockpile of weapons-grade plutonium from 50 kilograms to 70 Kilograms. Xiang, let's get the details on that. Uh, sure. Now, the defense paper was published on Thursday and offered a glimpse to North Korea's growing number of nuclear weapons and missile stockpiles, as well as its conventional military capabilities. And the paper estimates that North Korea's troop strength uh, is to be of 1.28 million active duty personnel. Now, according to the newly released uh, white paper, uh, North Korea has continued uh, uh, reprocessing fuel from its reactor and possesses about 70 kilograms of weapons-grade plutonium, which is up from 50 kilograms estimated in the previous report. Now, approximately six kilograms of plutonium is required to build one nuclear bomb and the increase in North Korea's stockpile of plutonium comes from Yongbyon, uh, 
nuclear complex, which is known as the country's main nuclear operations center. Now, the paper also states that South Korea's military is strengthening surveillance as the possibility of an additional nuclear test is rising. That's right. And uh, the tone of the white paper has been much stronger, naturally so. Uh, really puts North Korea sort of in a negative light compared to you know, last year's white paper, calling them you know, enemies while pointing out to cyber and, uh, and military provocations. But, Chiang, mm -hmm. have we seen such strong labels in previous government documents in the past? I would assume that maybe... Uh, Usually it's like the more liberal governments tend to be easier on North Korea, whereas the more conservative uh, administrations like, uh, you know, prior to the Moon Jae-in administration, you had the Park Geun-hye administration, mm -hmm. which was also quite, uh, you know, harsh, uh, harsher on the remarks in North Korea. So let's get the, the differences and the similarities here. Uh, yes. And pretty much, SJ, you hit it right on the nail. Uh, it pretty much seems as uh, uh, the changing description of North Korea and South Korea's defense white papers tend to reflect the rocky ties between the two countries. So when it comes to the more liberal administration, it seems as though the warning is a less stronger, less strong than uh, the conservative ones. And uh, previous defense papers have labeled North Korea as the main enemy in the past, uh, also present enemy or simply enemy, uh, particularly during times of tension. Um, however, such references have been avoided uh, when relations were improved between Seoul and Pyongyang. Now, uh, President Yoon Suk-yeol's liberal predecessor, Moon Jae-in, who put more efforts into reconciliation with the North, kind of avoided the use of the label to directly refer to North Korea. Uh, Yoon, who took office in May, has vowed a more stern response to North Korea, uh, North Korea's provocation. So it's not a surprise to see the much more strong wordings in the white paper. And as you mentioned, SJ, uh, Japan, on the other hand, was described in the paper as Seoul's quote unquote close neighbor. And that also shares values and also common interests uh, with South Korea. Now, what remains unchanged in the report since the 2018 defense paper is that North Korea has also secured substantial amounts of highly enriched uranium and a significant level of uh, capability uh, to min uh, miniaturize uh, atomic bombs. So it seems as though the Moon administration did acknowledge some kind of um, defense uh, posture that North is taking so far. Yeah, and that's the big thing that also the United States is also very much concerned with and the reason why they're uh, they won't react too heavily in like short-range ballistic missiles, but mm -hmm. they're always uh, react heavily into like the the intercontinental ballistic missiles right. because I think North Korea their plan, quote unquote, plan is to miniaturize their nuclear warheads and then uh, you know basically put it onto the intercontinental ballistic missiles, which is capable of reaching mainland United States is mm -hmm. apparently what it is, or at least Guam is what they're saying. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, it is. Quite interesting, I mean, and but also not surprising that you know, depending on the liberal or conservative uh, administration, that you'll see the different wording on this. Uh, but the big question is how now North Korea is going to respond to this, despite the fact that North Korea sort of called South Korea its enemies uh, first. Uh, but also moving on here, let's talk about 
the economy for the first time. Seoul's finance ministry assessing the country's economic slowdown. Bogyeong, let's get the details of this. Right. So the reason why this is the first time the finance ministry said that South Korea's economy is slowing is because until now, the ministry had been mentioning just the possibility of an economic slowdown in its monthly economic assessment reports or the Green Book since June last year. However, in the latest Green Book published in February, the ministry wrote, South Korea's inflation is still at a high level and domestic consumption recovery is slowing down. A persistent slump in Experts and deteriorating business sentiment indicate an economic downturn, unquote. South Korea's economy posted a minus growth in the fourth quarter last year, and export is sluggish as well. Export in January was 16.6% less than the previous year, all in all decreasing for four consecutive months since last October. The country's trade deficit in January reached a monthly record high of 12.69 billion U.S. dollars, which is an 11 straight month of losses, primarily due to soaring energy costs. According to the finance ministry, the current account balance in January is expected to worsen considering increased trade deficits. The current account balance for December last year recorded a surplus of 2.68 billion US dollars. Manufacturing and service sector production in December also decreased 3.5%, 0.2% respectively compared to the previous month. Consumer prices in the same month increased five by 5.2% year-on-year due to the hike in electricity prices. Business sentiment also worsened due to economic uncer- uncertainties. The Business Survey Index, or the BSI, which is based on the forecast and judgment of entrepreneurs regarding the current business environment, dropped by five points compared to the previous month for all industries to stand at 69 for January, which is the lowest in 28 months. If the index is below 100, it means that negative responses outnumber the positive ones. I have to say, I mean, it's, it hasn't been uh, too long ago since I last checked the, the BSI, but I believe the last time I checked was something like in like the 80s, right? Still under 100, but mm-hmm. still, like, it was like 80, and now it's 69. 69. That's really, really going down there. Guys, uh, we're going to move on now. Uh, something that we have, of course, been covering for almost two weeks now. Um, We're talking about the deadly earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. Now, this is what we have been sort of fearing uh, all throughout this time. There have been reports, uh, a large number of uh, reports of aftershocks that are happening. Now, normally when a major earthquake does happen, like we saw in uh, Turkey and Syria, you see a, a slew of aftershocks. But the thing is, they usually come in forms of maybe 2.0 to about 2.4 range and things like that. Uh, It's a little bit more different in Turkey, Syria region where there's been reports of larger aftershocks. We're talking about another strong aftershock once again, this occurring on Thursday in the Turkey-Syrian border area. Despite the fact that there is ongoing rescue and search operations right now, there's Still people uh, in makeshift shelters. Cheung, let's get the latest details of this. Yes. Now, so far, the death toll from Turkey and Syria earthquake is nearing 44,000. It seems as though this aftershock isn't helping much of the recovery. And now, according to the United States Geological Survey, at 9.47 p.m. local time on the same day, an earthquake with a magnitude of 5.2 occurred off 
the coast uh, 19 kilometers northwest of Unjuba, Haiti province, Turkey. Now, the depth of the epicenter was analyzed to be 10 kilometers. And uh, according to Russia's Sputnik News Agency, uh, the magnitude was analyzed to be 5.1 and said that some of the buildings that had been damaged by the earthquake earlier this month have actually collapsed because of this aftershock. And also, according to DPA News Agency, the Syrian Center for Geological Analysis gave the quake of a magnitude of 5.4. And uh, the news agency reported eyewitness testimonies say that residents of the Idlib province in northwestern Syria ran out into the streets screaming. So this looks like a very huge aftershock. Yeah, shock. and I think this uh, the this the slew of earthquakes has brought into spotlight uh, the constructions in uh, in Turkey, especially, and of course, which is why I think the Turkish government's really cracking down on the construction companies and the contractors mm-hmm. who you know cut corners. The the most shocking thing that I heard was. Uh, a hotel that collapsed. I mean, we're talking about a major hotel that collapsed, mm-hmm. which had many, many people included, which included, I believe, a, a volleyball team, mm-hmm. a women's volleyball mm-hmm. team that was on an away match, and they were staying at this hotel. Uh, unfortunately, they all lost their lives. And when you have a building like a hotel collapsing, mm-hmm. obviously there's big question as to how stable their construction is. Again, for our listeners out there, it's been 11 days and counting since this line of devastating earthquakes struck the border of Turkey and Syria. Uh, we are, fortunately, we are seeing a slowdown in the pace of the increase in the death toll, but still, uh, it did climb over to 43,000. We had the first team of relief personnel dispatched by South Korea coming back. The second team now there to help the people in need in the region. From what I understand, according to the authorities there, they're sort of shifting now the focus on not the search and rescue, but on the survivors uh, at Ground Zero. Joining us on the line this evening, we have Kim Ki, the head of communications team at the Korean Red Cross, who is in the region, joining us on the phone with us. Ms. Kim, uh, thank you very much for joining us this evening. Yeah. So, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much once again. Thank I do understand that things are very hectic over there. And uh, I have to say, I mean, you know, the reports say it. The pictures, the reports say this is the worst earthquake in Turkey's history. Can you tell us where you're currently at? How is the situation there? And of course, because of the aftershocks, there's also some concerns of additional building collapse in the area. Can you give us a rundown on the situation there? Well, the uh, situation here is very dramatic and building the schools and houses and other infrastructures were destroyed and thousands of people were trapped under the noble. And actually the rescue efforts are coming to an end, but there's no hope to find a new survivors. But there are still some rescue teams trying to find out few survivors. And well, next step or uh, pace is to remove this rubble. And this is not only because for the cleaning the city but also for giving the people a sense of normality and seeing the buildings collapse reminds people earthquake again and again. So, Ms. Kim, the first relief team of mostly military and firefighting personnel has retreated from the area. And now it's the second team of relief personnel that is composed of mostly medical staff has now been dispatched to the region by the South Korean government. So what is Turkey's response to the relief activities of the Koreans there? 
uh, well, uh, uh, after research, uh, after search and rescue, the most urgent services are shelter and health and nutrition and water and relief efforts. As you mentioned, more than one million people now are homeless and displaced. So, and uh, our Red Cross, uh, especially with Red uh, Trichia, Red Crescent Society, our focus is now is providing basic needs of food for the homeless people and providing emergency shelters with tents and blankets and clothes, etc. So people can stay warm somewhere, probably most of them are in the streets or in the parks, while recovery uh, efforts can start. Although uh, we focus now, I mean, Red Cross focus now on providing food and shelter, we also think the mental health is significantly important. Most people are traumatized by what has happened. So they lost their families and children. So they need to speak out and release their tension. So uh, Red Cross, we are providing all uh, psychological support. Yes, that's uh, a lo- exactly what a lot of the people need at the moment. But, uh, Ms. Kim, it seems as though Turkey's cold weather isn't uh, helping the situation. And you've seen what's going on over there firsthand. And I'm curious to hear what some of the most ur- things that are urgently needed uh, for relief goods or supplies over there. As I highlighted, because there are many homeless people and in the street, they need a shelter, an emergency shelter, and to stay warm. And as you mentioned, the weather is extremely cold here, mm-hmm. so the uh, the shelter is very the most urgent things. And also, the uh, basic needs for food is also another, uh, you know, important, you know, uh, things. Mm-hmm. Really is uh, shocking that uh, despite the ongoing continuous help uh, to send over tents and blankets, there's still uh, many more uh, in just uh, you know living in uh, makeshift uh, shelters right now. But from what I understand, Miss Kim, uh, the Korean Red Cross started creating long-term plans to help the area. I mean, uh, just the size of the earthquake, the magnitude of the damage being done certainly doesn't seem like a short-term plan right now. Can you tell us what's the plan to help not just Turkey, but also Syria moving forward? Uh, Well, um, Korean Red Cross has been monitoring uh, the humanitarian impact of this massive earthquake through our own International Emergency Response Operations Center uh, in headquarters from the onset of earthquake. And so far, we made a multilateral contribution of um, 100,000 Swiss francs to I5C appeal. I5C is an entity of the uh, Red Cross and Red Cross Society um, coordinated entity. So through the I5C, uh, the fund will be used to meet urgent needs and early recovery for the effective trichia, uh, tr- uh, and this may include the procurement commodities and food and etc. And we also sent the uh, 10,000 blankets and emergency relief kits, um, which include uh, jogging shoes and the blankets, and in cooperation with the Trichia Red Cross Society and Turkish Embassy in Seoul. In addition, as you highlighted in, in Syria, because we have uh, the another component of the Red Cross movement, ICIC, uh, which is play a key role in complex zone and complex area. So we are closely communicating with the um, International Committee of Red Cross for supporting emergency relief efforts of Syrian Arab Red Cross Society. Again, I know that it is at times uh, very difficult to be at ground zero and helping those out. But uh, Ms. Kim, we do appreciate all the hard work that you and your team 
are doing right now to really help those in need. Thank you very much for taking your time out of your busy schedule to connect with us and uh, looking forward to talking to you again in the near future. Thank you. Once again, that was uh, Kim Oki, the head of communication team at Korean Red Cross. It's uh, difficult to talk about. I don't know if you guys have been uh, sort of following up on all the news that's been coming out. Uh, mm-hmm. But what, one of the frustrating thing, I think, is there's been a lot of focus on the uh, helping of those in Turkey, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. even that, it's not enough because, you know, you've right. seen pictures. There's people living in makeshift shelters. You know, there's not enough tents. There's not enough, you know, blankets being held. Uh, and now they're saying that, you know, the focus is now on the survivors. There's trauma wards being built on ships. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how bad it is. But the other question is, of course, Syria, mm-hmm. right? And the, the lack of kind of help due to the political uh, situation there, uh, just unable to get the supplies in there. But um, we really are hoping that, uh, you know, the, a lot of the different countries and uh, times like this, you have to kind of overlook the the, the political differences and the mm-hmm. diplomatic differences and really help out uh, countries like Syria as well. Because from what I understand, uh, Turkey, about uh, 1.2 people are displaced, but something like 5.8 million are displaced in northwest Syria. So we are hoping that uh, the assistance uh, does carry out over to both Turkey and Syria as well. But uh, speaking of which, uh, Pogyeong, uh, we have, again, a large number of donations being sent in. This time the UN launching a flash appeal for one billion US dollars for Turkey. Let's get the details of that. Right. So the United Nations said that it will launch a flash appeal for one billion U.S. dollars to organize a humanitarian fund that would help more than five million people that are affected by the catastrophic earthquakes. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres said that this humanitarian aid could help more than 5.2 million people for the next three months. In his statement, Guterres said that it is time for the world to help Turkey just the way it helped others in the past, stressing the fact that Turkey is one of the countries that received the largest number of refugees. Currently, the death toll, as we all said, from the earthquakes stands at more than 42,000. You know, I mentioned this before. I mean, for a lot of our listeners as well, I know it's very difficult to get the updates. Uh, We even have uh, our daily listener, Jenga, who says, I try not to keep up as much, too much sad news for me. I have enough play taking care of my family, no need to address my stress. Hmm. And it is very difficult to get a lot of these updates. And oftentimes when you hear... uh, You heard basically what I think a lot of families have been dreading, that message from the authorities basically Mm -hmm. saying, we're now going to shift our focus to the survivors, Mm -hmm. right? So when you say we're going to shift now to the survivors, that also means that now they're going from the, you know, search and rescue operation Mm -hmm. to now search and recovery. Uh, But the fact of the matter is, and, you know, I like to kind of uh, end on a, I guess, on a bright note here, uh, Miracles, stories of miracles are still popping out. I mean, I don't know if you guys heard the story of the 17-year-old teenage girl that was rescued Mm -hmm. after 248 hours under the rubble. Um, And I think a lot of people see that. And I think, uh, again, it's stories like that where I hope that the rescue workers continue uh, to use that as momentum, motivation, Uh, to keep up the search and rescue operation because I know it's a really, really long time. The weather doesn't really help, Mm. but I believe there are still some that are still alive. 
uh, waiting to be rescued. Yeah, we'll all keep that hope going. Yeah, and uh, again, uh, for our listeners out there, again, there's been a lot of assistance that are going in. You could find out from your local, uh, I guess, uh, you know, public uh, organizations or local organizations that are taking part in the donation process. It's not taking a whole lot. I know there's been international donations going on from different countries, uh, but you yourselves, you guys can uh, take part in this, and they're saying it's a little as just blankets out there, and so... Uh, hopefully, we'll be able to uh, send out those uh, assistance as well. Guys, I want to thank you guys very much for coming in today with your reports. Please have a safe weekend, and we'll see you guys again. Thank you. Happy Friday. You can listen to Korea Now with me, SJ Lee, by downloading the Arirang Radio application or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com. So make sure you tune in Mondays through Fridays, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Korea time.